think about when we see some that might reference or include something to do with the struggles of rural communities in Africa, especially, and the focus is in some ways sort of what they are. You know, they are poor um, rural people in such and such a country. And the distinction of somebody, of having people who understand that community a bit better, that might be able to take us inside that community, is to change that question from not, through, you know, not what they are, but who they are. When you're aware of your own implication in these landscapes that you would never see, and you see what they really are, I think that is, is the beginning of, of, of action. Everything started when uh, we discovered these uh, beehives in the rocks. And uh, from there, uh, the curiosity happened. Who is the person behind this? Who, who makes this? And uh, to meet this person and to realize how special she is was the main inspiration to start all of this to go in the direction that it's now. What's up, guys? You're tuned into the Eyes on Conservation podcast. I'm your host today, Serena Simons, bringing you some awesome coverage from Sundance 2019, following in the footsteps of last episode's uh, Sundance coverage by Kristen Tiesch. Uh, I will be interviewing uh, several filmmakers that I encountered on my awesome time in Sundance. Uh, I was it, it was such an amazing experience, crazy but amazing, uh, just getting to be in the presence of so many uh, creative, inspiring people. And so on today's episode of the show, we are going all the way to Macedonia, back to Malawi, uh, and then pretty much all over the world again. So covering uh, Honeyland, which is uh, a documentary, I'd call a pseudo documentary, um, because it was so cinematic and beautiful, uh, about, uh, a woman, Hatija, who is living alone in an abandoned town in Macedonia, uh, near the capital, but, uh, far away from everyone. And she's, uh, solo beekeeping in this beautiful traditional way and, uh, sustaining herself and her mother, um, the best way she knows how until a family shows up and kind of disrupts everything. Uh, and then we're also going to talk to the filmmakers of Anthropocene, which is uh, a new documentary that is so gorgeous, so timely and so important. And, uh, that film it, it just, I think about it all the time. I think about the imagery that I saw in it, but that is talking about how humans are now, uh, creating the Anthropocene. We have left the Hallocene epoch and are now in the Anthropocene, meaning humans are now changing the earth in geologic time. We have now made an, enough of an impact to have really created our own epoch, which is just fascinating. So we're going to be talking to those filmmakers as well as a very special interview with Chiwetel Ejiofor, uh, who you might know from various movies, including 12 Years a Slave and Children of Men. He's going to be in the new Lion King movie. But this is his directorial debut, The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind, uh, who he also stars in. And we're going to be picking his brain about the film, which follows a young boy in Malawi during a terrible drought in the early 2000s. And by the way, this is based on a true story, who goes against all odds and learns how to build a windmill for his village and save them from devastation and death. It's beautiful. And I really encourage you all to see it. It's on Netflix, so there's no excuse. And uh, I'm really excited about today's show. I hope you enjoy it. I hope you find it as informative and intriguing and interesting and inspirational as I did. And uh, this is my coverage from the 2019 Sundance Film Festival in Park City, Utah. The Anthropocene is the time in the geological record when humans have moved the planet outside its natural limits. Humans go from being participants in the whole Earth to being a dominant feature. Dominating the oceans, the landscape, agriculture, animals. It could be a full-scale catastrophic change. Uh, 
Um, so I guess I'll start by um, just if you guys could introduce yourself. We're going to be talking about the film Anthropocene, The Human Epoch, and I just saw it last night, and so it's pretty fresh in my mind. But if you guys could introduce yourselves. So I am Jennifer Batewell, the co-director of Anthropocene, The Human Epoch. And I'm Nick Depensier, another co-director, along with our friend Edward Bertinsky, and also the director of photography of Anthropocene, The Human Epoch. I guess, so my first question is, the scale of this film, it took you guys four years to make this film. I guess, how did you do that? How did you manage to do that? Um, I'm a big proponent. Uh, in filmmaking of the idea that you can't really learn to make films you can just learn to make the film that you're working on at the time and its own specific universe and and set of rules and demands from the subject matter in a way you can almost not get bigger in scope than taking on the whole planet as your subject and also thinking in geological time so we knew from the very beginning this was a very ambitious undertaking and was going to take a collaboration among three uh, filmmakers and all of our wonderful teams um, and also a big window of time to research for almost a year, uh, certainly working with the Anthropocene Working Group of Scientists and their research and then thinking and iterating uh, how to translate some of the ideas of the things that they're researching uh, into visual uh, language and into experiential scenes uh, in the film. It's also a project that is not just a film. It has a art museum exhibition component, which we've already successfully launched in Canada and will travel around the world. It's going to Italy in May. Uh, and it's an education component. It's been two books. Uh, there are 360 VR films. There's augmented reality. Uh, so we also knew that for such a, an ambitious topic, we wanted to have a lot of different windows into uh, the themes and the scenes that we were going to investigate. Um, so I guess the argument of the film is that we've left the Holocene Epoch and we've entered the Anthropocene Epoch. Um, and you guys were talking about the, the research that you've been involved with in covering this it, and using the documentary as a way to kind of visually tell that story rather than doing like a long-form research paper that nobody's going to read. Um, so you have this beautiful film that hopefully a lot of people will have access to and see. Um, what like what drew you guys to such a heavy topic? I, I know that this is very... I mean, I'm interested in this because I feel like the, the story of the earth and what humans are doing to it is kind of like the most important thing we can talk about and work towards. But what drew you guys to wanting to tell the story about the planet? Well, I mean, this collaboration with Ed Bertinsky, the photographer, started um, 13 years ago with Manufactured Landscapes, and we made Watermark together. This is kind of the third. It wasn't intended that way. It just sort of organically happened. And the, the film was very much um, inspired by the research of the Anthropocene Working Group scientists who, for 10 years, have been gathering evidence about human impact on the systems of the Earth. And they were tasked by the International Commission on Stratigraphy to do this research to determine whether the idea had any merit at all. Like, is are we in the Anthropocene epoch? Have we left the Holocene? And over the course of 10 years, they pretty much unanimously have come to the conclusion that humans change the Earth and its systems more than all natural processes combined. And they have all of this research to prove it. So I knew we knew that the film was going to follow their research categories and explore them and try to find the most sort of powerful or salient examples also of of their categories so anthroturbation human tunneling terraforming of the earth for which is changing the earth's surface for agriculture industrialization urbanization technofossils which are human created materials that persist in the biosphere like plastic concrete aluminum um they estimate that the technosphere is 30 trillion tons of material, the built environment, um, et cetera, et cetera. So we, we, we knew we wanted to do that. And I, I, I would say that for most people, I think especially people living in the global north in urban environments and cities, they kind of think of civilization as one thing and nature as another thing, that, you know, you go into nature to hike or go on a canoe trip or something or go for a walk, and then you go back to your life in the city, and, and, and that's life. When, in fact, 
the two are so inextricably connected and everything we do in the city every single day is taking from nature in some way um, and we have been doing that forever but now the rapidity and scale of our taking has um, pushed into another limit and I think that the idea of Anthropocene is is allowing people to be aware of, of, of how much impact we have had as a species and the fact that we need to collectively find a way to pull the earth systems back into a safe place for all life, for not just us, but all, all other life on earth, because we are all in, integrally connected. So the idea was to try to make that concept that, you know, when we started this, nobody, n- nobody had heard of that word. Nobody knew what that word meant. Now it is, it's starting to pervade more and more into um, public consciousness and awareness of our impact. Do you think that there's a way to shift out or basically change the direction that we're headed um, deeper and deeper into this Anthropocene epoch where we are just taking and taking and um, we've dug ourselves too far? Or do you think that there's... Because the film... It, it doesn't show the positive of like what humans are doing. So it's a lot of um, uh, showing how we are exploiting and how like on on the extreme scale that we are exploiting. But it, but it's it's so matter of fact and it's so you have to think about that. You have to think about your own personal impacts. But on such a small scale as one individual who sees the film, you know, or the collective of people who see the film, what the takeaway is, of course, you know, we need to stop these processes but do you think that we are too far gone as a species the film is heavy obviously and it takes us to places that um uh are often devastating uh to witness um just as they are devastating on the environment that they that they are in um but it is absolutely an act of hope uh that we are not uh, finished that the the Anthropocene, you might argue about when it started, um, but that how it ends is still very much up for grabs. Um, and that's the ambition of the work is to raise consciousness, is to, as you described very deliberately, um, not be prescriptive and not be an environmental rant and not be uh, fixed in the meaning of visiting these places or try to reduce them in a way that doesn't acknowledge their complexity, um, but allows each individual viewer, hopefully, in that in the openness of that approach of filmmaking, to have a more uh, singular and personal and hopefully more profound uh, potential for learning and transformation. And then, of course, the ideal is is that whatever that new learning is does translate into some kind of of change of action, change of behavior on an individual level and uh, at a collective level. Can I just add to that, which is that, you know, the film is not all negative. Like, there's something very ambiguous about the, the tusk burn, which is the opening and ending of the film. Because it's in, in, it's an incredible tragedy when you think about the deaths of 10,000 elephants, when you think about the, 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 the global demand, the illegal trade in ivory, the desperation of poachers, the, the middlemen and the, who are, are uh, the middle people, I guess, who are, who are fencing that and, and, and the demand. Like, on the other hand, it is an incredible act of hope to burn all of that ivory. Um, and it feels like an apocalyptic moment, but in fact, it is a positive thing um, to say I, there should be no market for ivory, period. There's no such thing as a legal market. Ivory belongs to elephants, period. And that was a lot of, you know, that was worth, what, what was that, Nick? 150 million US dollars? You know, that was a lot of money <laughs> and and they they burned it that was an act of hope going to the zoological society of london and the london zoo with these animals mm. that are extinct these species that are extinct in the wild or critically endangered and the, the the way that they are cared for by people who are actively working to reintroduce these species to protect them when you go to even underground farming in a bomb shelter you know finding new lands finding new ways of farming that don't involve you know pesticide use and and huge swaths of land and uh, uh, so they're at lithium you know lithium yeah. is an alternative for you know uh, uh, to to fossil fuels so they're they're all through 
I would say, um, sort of evidence of our species' ingenuity. Like we've 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 come so far, we've been so successful um, that that we have the capacity um, uh, to succeed. We also have the capacity to. Uh, understand that we have to mitigate our impact um, or or we'll, we'll, we'll be gone along with everything else. And I think that's one of the most beautiful contradictions of just like human species is that we are capable of doing such devastation but we have these giant brains that can do amazing things and we have the potential. So my last question is um, what do you guys think people should be doing better as individuals and you know how do you think we can get more forward-thinking people and using our big primate brains to make some real change on the planet and what do you think that's going to look like i think the answer to the question of of what we should be doing is as different as there are different people who need to answer that question because all of us have different um capacities and interests and talents uh, that we can bring to these solutions. So I don't think there is one answer beyond um, to be aware, to be engaged, to participate. People who are inclined to throw their hands up in despair will not be part of the solution. And uh, the scientists have told us that we are really running out of time for a lot of these questions. Um, There is no more carrying capacity on the planet that we can outsource some of these problems to. Uh, It's all right now in our faces all the time, given our population and our unprecedented uh, footprint. Uh, So it's it's really a crisis time that we all need to participate in in the solution. Yeah, and I would would also argue there that... um we have to support the people who are actively working for change. Now, we're all, we are all implicated. There, there, there are critiques of the Anthropocene. There are critiques of it that say it should be called capitalist-scene, that actually there's a very small group of people who live in the global north in the developed world who are responsible for most of the destruction. Or you could even say there are, there are a handful of corporations that are responsible for a lot of the destruction on the earth. But, you know, there are always people who are affected by it, and there are people who are, have tiny footprints who who are are the most affected by by the change, especially climate change, which is the the unfairness of that is usually marginalized and people of color. So yeah, yeah. So the 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 so we have to uh, you know acknowledge our varying degrees of implication. Number one, and then also when we have what the res- use the resources that we have, especially people who live in 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 um, you know countries like Canada or the United States. Uh, to support people who are actively working for change, um, as well as uh, individual actions. You know, it it makes a difference if you refuse to use single-use plastic. It makes a difference if you walk instead of drive in a car. It makes a difference if you don't eat meat, you know, every day or once a week. You know, if you eat meat, if you you become a vegetarian, all of these things are, are, are huge changes that you can make in your own life and then connecting to collectives and people who are you know uh, prosecuting polluters like waterkeeper alliance or swim drink fish or our friends at environmental defense or eco justice who are actually using existing legislation and existing laws to punish polluters that's important too let's support those people there, there are so many different things as nick said that 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 we can all do uh, depending on where we are and what our our resources are um, uh, that uh, I'm hopeful our role is to uh, make people aware to try to raise awareness so that then the shift in or we say the shift, a shift in consciousness is the beginning of change when you're aware of your own implication in these landscapes that you would never see um, and you see what they really are I think that is, is the beginning of, of, of action so hopefully Thank you both so much, and congratulations on the film. Thank you you so much.
ha. Bir şey görüyor musun? Görüyorum. Okay, I will start from here. I'm a Femi Daud, a cinematographer of Hanaland, and we are from Skopje, Macedonia. Hi, I'm Tamara Kotevska, one of the directors of Hanaland, and also from Macedonia. Hi, I'm Ljubo Stefanov, co-director of Hanaland, from Macedonia also. Atanas Georgiev, we are all from Macedonia, I'm the producer <laughs> and the editor. And my name is Samir Ljuma, I'm uh, the other cinematographer of Hanaland. And uh, another person, uh, which, is not, here which is not here with us, she is not from Macedonia, she is from Lebanon, Ranaid, our sound designer. Amazing. That's the old crew. The whole crew. Yeah. Wow. So I feel so lucky to have all of you guys here. Thank you so much for taking the time. I know you're all busy, but also congratulations on the film. Thank you. Um, I saw it a couple days ago, and it was amazing. So beautiful. It just, and, and like I was telling you guys, like I'm a beekeeper, that's what initially drew me to the film, um, but I had to tell all my coworkers, like, you guys have to see this, and I was curious about their reaction to it as people that are non-beekeepers. So I guess to start, um, how did you guys find the story? How did you guys meet um, the main character? How, how, how did you guys get involved in this Please project? Please come around. Okay, uh, so I will speaking his name now because he's actually the primary responsible person for finding this character. Mm-hmm. This actually all started as a different kind of project, like an environmental project for the territory where this village is. And uh, in, in that period, uh, we still didn't know Atija, the main character. But uh, everything started when uh, we discovered this... Uh, Beholds, beehives in the rocks, mm-hmm. and uh, from there uh, the curiosity happened. Who is the person behind this? Who who makes this? Mm-hmm. And uh, to meet this person and to realize how special she is was the main inspiration to start all of this to go in in the direction that mm-hmm. it it's now. Mm-hmm. Obviously, this is a human story, mm-hmm. a real life story, but it has an environmental strong environmental message. Uh, bees are... Uh, it's not about the bees, but um, the using of uh, resources. Mm-hmm. The bees as producers of, of resources, such as honey, and uh, the humans who are users of those resources. And um, the main... That, that main environmental point is uh, the, the, the principle of equal share of benefits. Mm-hmm between user and provider for uh, which ensures the food security in the future right in the next season the next year right. in the next and the importance actually uh, of the bees uh, for the uh, entire planet mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, somehow Atija our main character is um, really special mm-hmm. because we learned a lot from her I was not uh, at all involved in beekeeping or you know I was not familiar with it uh, but uh, what I've learned during the process of three years of shooting is really uh, 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 priceless for me uh, and how I started seeing uh, 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 the way how we should treat mm-hmm. the nature and uh, everything that the nature gives mm-hmm. us. Like through the example of Atija, because in the movie it's very obvious how she sent the message that you always have to leave half for those who gives you, who provides you as a, uh, as a source, in this case the, the bees. The resource. The resource. Yeah. And the, uh, the, the, this message uh, she tries to uh, tell to the new big, uh, new uh, nomadic family who are intruding the village and uh, who are entering in her life, kind of, um, uh, who started uh, to harvest as well and to uh, um, to exploit actually uh, the, the the region mm-hmm. with the, and the honey, mm-hmm. which endangered uh, the uh, bees that the Atija, our main character, was taking right. care of. Right. So, I mean, what was it like seeing her work uh, in her hives for the first time, meeting her as a character, going on that cliff, um, going into, you know, the village where she stopped? But that's how it started. Right. Uh, that scene is actually the first uh, scene we shot. It was very strange because uh, we had a, 
and it was, we didn't have any kind of uh, security belts. It was like everything, uh, just go move, uh, take the camera on the hand and just uh, uh, record all those uh, things that are happening in front of the camera. And when we started to open uh, this uh, gate, beehive, it was like, wow, we didn't see anything like that before in, in my life. And after some uh, hours of the shooting in that uh, beehive, uh, they started to attack me. Uh, and I had uh, four uh, stumps, stings, stings <laughs> from uh, that uh, beehive and I was just uh, grabbing to get out of the, this uh, cliff and I just climbed like, like, like a situation. Right after that we had uh, already used uh, to, to be in front of the, the beast and we didn't have so so much, uh, how to say, uh, scaring about mm-hmm. situation about that. We're used to it. Yeah. So is that when you all got kind of hooked on Hatija as a character, seeing her... In the first moment. So amazing, yeah. right? In the first moment. Mm-hmm. So, um, as a beekeeper, a modern beekeeper, I guess, what most people use now, we have suits, we have veils... We have smoke. We have all this protection. I can't even imagine going on the side of a cliff. We didn't she only had a veil on. Her hands were exposed, and her face. You know, like um, um, maybe you know, we should uh, this uh, uh, when we first time started uh, uh, shooting with her. We didn't know where. We exactly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We, we will lead to this story in her life because we were shooting for three years. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, I remember uh, first time when we started uh, shooting how she's opening and checking these beehives on the cliffs. I noticed that uh, one beehive, uh, there is like not that much uh, produced honey. And in another one, it was full with, uh, with, uh, with the honey and honey clumps. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Honey clump. So I asked her, Atija, you know, like, how come? You know, like here there was uh, very little and here it's a full. You know, I said, like, did you take it or something? She said, no, 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 it's like like, like the families. You have a rich family and you have poor family. Yeah. So very simple, she explained the whole um, uh, circle, uh, the way how the bees are functioning. Like, they really function like a, like a human somehow uh, in uh, working and providing uh, for the queen bee. And their, you know, she told us that there is a, a special bees who are protectors, who are like army, who try to protect, uh, which is the first line of the of the of the beehive. Uh, when the others bees uh, will try to steal the honey, so we, we right sure right bees and left bees. Yeah, yeah. She, was, uh, like, she called them right bees and left bees, and she always tells us that you should. You should be uh, careful, careful with, the, with the left, left ones. the left ones, they yeah, attack really the yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that attackers. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, when that family started moving in and she was telling, you know, the neighbors, you have to leave honey for your bees. Half of that needs to stay. And he did listen to her. Um, and that, that encourages robbing, encourages them not having the resources that they need in, uh, in, in his bees to go to her bees. Oh, that's the, right. the main conflict. In the, right. In the but I just thought that relationship between um, her bees and his bees and their family and, and her little family, like the, the, that relationship was reflected in, her, in their bees. And I thought that was so interesting. And the way she takes care of hers in that traditional way, which allows for a slower process that yields ultimately more in the long run and his is more speed, more um, uh, capitalist money making and, and that was his version of it. So And then the conflict over those two um, ways of life I thought was really fascinating and illustrating that in, in, in nature too. It's a process, not but just in humans. That's that uh, important environmental message. Mm-hmm. So can you guys, and I, I've heard some things from the panels and screenings that you guys have done for the film. Um, you, so you, you went into this wanting to follow her as a character, and you didn't know what you were going to what you were gonna get. No, we were prepared to stay there as long uh, as, as, as necessary. Is yeah, it exactly. necessary? Yeah. yeah. 
So we so spent three years there. Actually, the, the our producer and editor, because uh, he can explain about uh, the process of editing uh, while we were shooting. Yeah. So. Uh, the end of shooting actually he forced us because you know like we were already three years <laughs> <laughs> well those guys brought me a 400 hours of material wow. so it's it's the biggest amount that I ever received I've done so many films but this was a really challenge for me yeah and uh, for example I would I must say this I felt it uh, in this case I, I was so amused and somehow I felt this that I have such a beautiful time because As an editor, I felt that I have this big white canvas in front of me with so many colors, so I could do anything. Anything, yeah. So, uh, as well, that they were shooting, so when it, if it was missing something, we would agree on something, okay, let's focus on this, so let's start the searching the conflict on this on this point. So they would, they would bring another uh, material, so we would research it again, so we would... Mm -hmm. and, and on the end... Uh, How can I say? I, they wanted to go again to, to shoot, and uh, all, all the time they were wanted to, wanted to shoot Get more and more. Get <laughs> addicted. How far were you all from the village? How far? We is were that? In, look, uh, that's the, the area, mm -hmm. <coughs> the Honeyland area. Mm -hmm. it's, it's actually an abandoned place in central part of our country. Mm -hmm. Actually, it is very close to the to the, to the capital, and uh, th those plains. Uh, which are in two yeah, scenes. Some scenes but, yeah. uh, it shows that the airport is only 20 miles from from her village. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but um, there is no road. There, ne they never had electricity. Those abandoned villages, they're abandoned since 1950s. And uh, we were staying in tents in sessions of maximum four days because no water no no electricity we we, we never had a generator. generator so so when the neighbors moved in you guys weren't it, it was uh, first we started shooting with uh, only with attitude mm -hmm. and uh, our our main idea was to to make a, a short documentary about her and they appear three or four months after mm -hmm. after we started It, it was not accessible and it was uh, like two and a half hours uh, drive from the capital. Um, it was not very uh, easy to reach because you need uh, special vehicles, uh, so like four by four. And even sometimes in the bad weather conditions, uh, we were also not able. You know, several times we got stuck. For example, uh, we received the information that her mom uh, died. She called us. Uh, the crew went uh, there and they needed to walk for four hours with the equipment because we didn't have proper car at that moment and we couldn't arrange to get because we, we, we didn't have. Uh, so we were renting every time uh, the 4 by 4 car. Yeah, and, and it, it sounds like you all became quite close to her. She of called course. you. And we stayed close. Right. Not only with, with her, with the family also. The family. So, okay. I want to add this, the closeness. We bought a house for her. Uh, in, the ne in the nearest civilization and uh, for the kids we are raising a fund uh, for a scholarship fund and uh, we will try to give a present to everybody would, that would like to um, give some donation to the kids so we will try to provide a small yard of honey and so to So the donators can have a little uh, souvenir from it. And, and we'll definitely put all that information on our, yes, on, in our podcast. And This is very, very helpful. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, anyone if can check the uh, website, it's honeyland.earth. Right. Uh, so they can find all the information about right. donating. Yeah, and, and it's a big help if uh, uh, the listeners can share this information and uh, hopefully they will have a chance to see the movie. See the movie. Yeah. I, I yeah. want everyone to see the movie. But um, as far as that, the, the family goes, how was it developing this relationship with, with her and then seeing this family move in and sort of, you know, it, it started out warm and friendly and then there's this conflict that evolves. How, so in, how was it to film them? Share in mind that we were there three years. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we made a lot of material. Uh, at first, of course, we approached her. Uh, and a lot later, uh, we started communicating with, with the children, with the other family. And we didn't even have a plan for them to be part of, in the beginning, of course, to be part of the film, because we were just focused on her mm -hmm. and her story. 
And then when we discovered their conflict with the beast, this became a different, uh, a lot stronger story. So uh, we started calling them to like eat with us, started approaching them. And through a certain process of time, we got their trust and they opened to us basically. So uh, every new time we went there, they wanted to show more. <laughs> yeah, so. and uh, the film definitely shows that. I loved her relationship with the, I don't remember his name, the one boy. Yeah, he was he was funny. He was so great, especially with her her mother being ill. She kind of took on this role this, this um, kind of motherly or aunt figure uh, who sh- kind of showed him her way of doing things. And I think he really appreciated that, especially when they were um, you know by the fire. He was kind of only one who uh, understood uh, the way how you should treat uh, the bees and. Uh, because he was trying to explain to his father, you know, like, don't take everything, you know, like, and, um, yeah, that's how it happened and uh, everything how it is, um, but um, um, the family with uh, seven kids uh, living in these conditions, um, in uh, economically unstable environment uh, where you have to provide everything uh, for your kids, um, uh, we try to understand uh, why he behaved like that but that's why for example we started this donation process so we can add to their education because we think that education of these kids and any other kids uh, towards um, 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 to provide uh, proper education for any kid actually can uh, make um, a better understanding how we should treat uh, uh, the environment as well it was the new information of our day of pre- premiere, uh, the family with uh, seven children, they told us that uh, Lutvia, mother, she born eighth child. Wow. Yeah, she got so premiere. Yeah, on the day of the premiere, so everything that we're trying to do it is to do maximum for this family. Okay. Has the family seen the film? One more picantry. The mother actually that uh, is present oh, in the film that died in the film yeah. in front of the cameras actually died exactly one year before we have this premiere and the, the same, same hour. Day. On the, same day. the same day and the same hour. So I started uh, being superstitious and to believe in this metaphysics and filming. <laughs> <laughs> so this is this is kind of a sign for all of us. Like, ooh, <laughs> we got ooh, scared. <laughs> but I think that's going to be really special for Hacha to see her mother on film yeah. and remembered in that way because their relationship was so interesting. She she felt so much love for her mother and you can feel it but there was also you know these two two strong-minded individuals that are in cl- such close contact with each other they're inevitably going to have fighting and you know but it was so funny at times too and i think when she finally sees the film it's going to be really special for her it was another point that uh, in this uh, documentary that is also hard because i work a lot of uh, years on uh, films uh, and uh, documentaries uh, we have a birth in our documentary and uh, death. Yeah, yeah, with the no, It was like, yeah, it was yeah. like, uh, we didn't uh, know that we're gonna, gonna have such a chance to, to shoot like this uh, situation with the cow and uh, with the mother. It was like, oh, come on, just uh, do it. They called us. Uh, we went there and we had uh, just opportunity to shoot five minutes. That was the, the only scene, uh, scene that we shoot it in. Three or four shots. There was that, you know. Mm-hmm. It was amazing to be part of this. Right, that she allowed you guys to come in and film the mother. She called. She, she, called, called, us. she called us. She called us. And I'm lucky that I was not available at that moment because it was like a last-minute call. Mm-hmm. I was on uh, another project, so. Uh, Femi uh, was the one who shot that we scene. We waited a long time, uh, around uh, one month, that she was very sick, and day after day we just as expected that she will, she will die, and the day that called us, and we just 
took out the, the equipment, went there, and it was like moment to, to catch. It was very. I it think was um, uh, later on we were discussing. I think that moment was uh, something which uh, left the most. Uh, Uh, bitter taste uh, for the entire crew, I think, uh, for a while, because uh, the exp- to, to, to be there, mm-hmm. probably with the characters that you were spending uh, the last three years and to experience this moment was uh, a bit emotional uh, for everyone, you know, no matter how much uh, or how we were sure that this will uh, occur uh, sooner or later. As you saw it on the on the documentary, the mother Nazife didn't uh, stand up from that uh, uh, chair or how to say uh, uh, bed uh, for a four years, five years. Four or five years. Yeah, she just all the time she sit there, lay there. She didn't stand up to to walk around in front of the house. And after that, when she died, we saw that emptiness in the this house. That it was like we had uh, two lives in, inside. Now there are only just one, and it's now moving on. She is not staying like there. She is continuing to to live with that. Right, right. So how how is she doing now? You guys said you bought her house. Yes, still, yeah, she's we're still fine. Communicating. She's fine. She's still moving. She's here and there, but we hope she will. She will be under her forever because yeah. there are no. Uh, and she will be close to her relatives. Yeah. So. yeah. Is she still beekeeping? Of yes. course, yeah. it was her life. <laughs> yeah. It was her life. That's uh, the thing that she do the most. Uh, awesome. Awesome. Whole life. Great. Well, yeah. um, thank you guys so much for your time. And um, can you say again um, how people listening can donate to the fund for the children? And um, it's uh, www. Honeyland.earth, like the planet Earth. So just uh, go visit our site and you find all the information you need. Thank you all so much. Thank you also. Thank you. Thank, Thank you very much. much. How does it feel, William? I never went to secondary school. Because proud. Hey, <laughs> looking sharp, eh? You too, man. <laughs> Kachokolo is not the wealthiest school in the district, but it's down to each one of you to decide your own level of commitment. Commitment! The rains came late this year, and now the trees have gone. Malawi is preparing for a very long hungry season. I saw the film at Sundance um, a few weeks ago, um, and I, I just want—I wanted to talk to you about it, and uh, I guess just about, um, like, I guess I'll just jump in. So, um, I guess, what is your stance on um, climate change? Because um, from you know, coming from my background, the film. Um, you know, all these issues going on with the family and in the background is famine and potentially famine caused by human impacted climate change. So I guess what is your stance sure. on climate change? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. You know, I just I felt that the film had um, when I read the book in 2009, I thought that it was really uh, it just it had a really important environmental message right at its center, right in the heart of the film. Uh, which has only become more relevant over that over that decade, you know, um, that obviously that combination of climate change where people are no longer, especially in places where people are absolutely reliant on a consistency of weather and a consistency of weather pattern and those and that shifting of weather patterns, that the nature of climate change is absolutely kind of undeniable and it immediately affects these these communities and so in this iteration in this experience you know that there's obviously that heavy heavy rainfall that has come very late in the season and then this drought hits you know just absolutely nothing and very very dry for a very long period and that combination was the first uh the first kind of hit of this uh, of the of the events that affected William Kamkwamba and his family and his community in Malawi and the fact that those kind of events 
you know, are more and more frequent, you know, not just in Africa, not just in Malawi, but around the world. And that sense that, the, um, that, that, is, on the, that is something that is on the increase and is clearly um, as a result of, of, a changing, of a changing climate. You know, their issue in, uh, in 2001, 2002 was also, you know, there were other factors involved, you know, that, um, you know, it's the unregulated price of grain was another major issue that, uh, that affected that community. You know, there was that massive shortfall due to the harvest, and then grain prices just shot up in an unregulated way, which froze out the, the farmers. And so, the, um, uh, and so in 2009, we were dealing with the economic collapse, the global economic collapse uh, you know, that had happened in 2008. So again, this issue of climate change and this issue of uh, economics, you know, were completely sort of interwoven in the experience that the the Malawians had in 2001-2002 and were part of, in some ways, the sort of global dialogue, you know, in different ways. And so because of that, you know, it seems that that sort of hydra, that kind of double-headed hydra is exactly what is going to be and continues to be the sort of balance of figuring out what, where, who's being impacted by these issues and often they're just the mo- at this time they're the most kind of vulnerable communities, the communities that ironically do the least environmental damage and, you know, and, whether, and what are the economic responses to, that, to those issues as they happen. You know, so that, that was kind of, you know, that and so, you know, the environmental and the economic and as well as the, the, the wider questions in terms of environment that I was intrigued by in the, in the book, in the memoir I wanted to represent in the film, which is deforestation, how that impacts the flooding, how that then impacts the, the harvest and so on, and just connecting all of those, that, all of that tissue. Um, and, and so Malawi in this instance is a sort of microcosm of these kind of global dynamics and ways in which people are impacted by it and ways in which governments don't in- engage in it and how the economics freezes out the people affected. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and as you were saying, it's even more relevant today, you know, the, the, and, and it's amazing that this is based on a true story, which really hits home the fact that, you know, these communities, as you said, who are doing the least environmental damage are being hit the hardest by climate change um, and incredible industrialization. So I guess sure. um, having having the stance that you do and being interested, I'm, I'm so glad to hear that you are as interested in um, environmental issues as you are, which is super obvious by the film. But I guess how has your stance on um, climate change influenced the projects and the roles that you take on or will take on in the future? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's, you know, it's a, it's a kind of case-by-case case basis, you know, but that's what I wanted to do in many ways with this film, you know, that it's that it that trying to create um, pieces of art, pieces of work that kind of can clearly start to tie in all of these very all of these sort of strands of the argument. And I think what's important to me is to to tie them in in ways that are undeniable, you know. But I feel like there are other ways and there are other films that I've made that actually do kind of start to. In some ways, talk about these things. You know, I always felt like Zifa Zachariah, even though it talks about a kind of in, an incident, which is a kind of man-made incident that destroys the environment. You know, that I, it's a film I made, a Craig Zobel film that we made in New Zealand, uh, that was with myself, Chris Pine, and Margot Robbie a few years ago. Uh, but I always felt like that had such a strong environmental element to the story, just the way that. As people, we encroach upon the environment that we destroy it, and and really, the sort of core root of what happens is it's not, in a sense, about the planet per se, you know, because as in that film, the planet in some form survives. It may be damaged, it might be beaten up by human beings, but in some form, it survives. What is really at risk is us. You know, though actually what we're damaging is our capacity to live on this planet. <laughs> and, and so some of, some of the films, and that film in particular, you know, just really kind of hit home as well to that message that in a way we're not just trying to save the planet itself, which is far more robust than we could ever imagine. What we're trying to save and spare is our capacity to exist on it. And in some ways that's also 
what this film is talking about, you know, how these families and these communities are struggling against this, in this place that is, that is changing for sure. But, what it, but, it's, but the nature of how it changes actually has this massive detrimental impact on human, human beings and human capacity. Right. What I also loved, I mean, this was your first directorial debut, but um, I think it's just amazing to hear Black stories told by Black storytellers. And I guess I'm just wondering if you think, you know, the, the, the role that you had in this film, you were acting in this film and you directed this film, how that kind of influenced and shaped the way the film came out and the voice that you had, what's the importance of having black directors tell black stories and, and, and giving a voice to those kinds of important issues? Yeah, I think that the kind of the, the charge and the, and the challenge in a way of, of diversity in cinema and, uh, and diversity broadly is that one is able to hopefully, and this is what the, the charge and the challenge of this film, is you, what you want to do is to enrich the kind of cultural, artistic landscape and the kind of, sort of wider cultural sense of art by telling stories from the, from the point of view of the people who experience things, you know, from telling stories from inside the experience. You know, we're often, uh, certainly when I was growing up and I think most, most of the time when we, think, when we think about when we see films that might reference or include something to do with famine or the struggles of rural communities in Africa, especially, you know, we're often shown these things from the outside, from an outside perspective that is sort of looking maybe empathetically, maybe sympathetically, um, maybe pityingly, you know, on the, on these, on the people, you know, and we, and the focus is in some ways sort of what they are, you know, they are poor um, rural people in such and such a country. You know, and the, and, the, and the distinction of somebody, of having people who understand that community a bit better, that might be able to take us inside that community, is to change that question from not, for, you know, not what they are, but who they are. And, and, being, and being able to talk about who they are really means being able to see that perspective from inside of it. What does it feel like inside of the family, inside of the community to be undergoing these kind of pressures, to be fighting your way through, to find positive solutions and to be, to find inspiration from inside that community and inside that dynamic. And I think that that is what is so rich about being able to have different voices and people to express their own um, opinions and their own understandings of different places, you know, Malawi is very different from Nigeria, but uh, and there is no general African space. You know, there's no sort of generic Africa. You know, but when I was traveling back and forth as a kid, as a young man, to Nigeria and to the village in Nigeria, you know, I was I was aware of certain dynamics. I was aware of certain things. Some of those things are similar to the way things operate in the rural communities in Malawi. So I was able to find a way in, which I think is, is kind of often slightly more difficult if you haven't had any exposure to those kinds of worlds before, you know, that, that sense of the world before. So I feel like that's the real benefit of, of having those different points of view. It's like it allows people, allows audiences to have a, a, a rich cultural experience by going inside those, those kinds of dynamics and to see the world through the eyes of the people who experience certain things and therefore have a richer appreciation of the world, a richer understanding of the world, a richer sort of knowledge of the world, which I think is one of the crucial things that art achieves or can achieve. And at its best, I think that's what it does achieve is like we see the world in slightly different ways, which actually informs our overall understanding of, of the world. Absolutely. You know? And it just becomes less anthropological. And that's kind of what I, I think most people are used to, especially when dealing with countries in Africa. Um, so I, I just, I just want to say again, beautifully done. And I really appreciated that we got to know his family so deeply in a way that I, I think is shaped by the fact that you are also an actor, but also um, a black actor and a black director. Um, and, and you have you know, that, that lens in which you're coming from, you've traveled before and you say that you're, um, that you've 
kind of been let in. Um, but you also took the time to learn um, the languages there. And and I just think that that really shapes the story in a really beautiful way. But um, oh, so um, I guess my last question would be um, one of the big things, I guess, the themes that I saw in the film was um, William's father being this elder in the community, um, not the chief, but an elder in the community who has a way of doing things and has always done things a certain way, but those things yeah. are not working for him and his family and the village anymore. So I think that's yeah. sort of kind of like a big theme that's happening today is we can't do business as usual. Um, if we want to yeah. survive, um, this current crisis that we're in and we have a lot of youth that are kind of rising up and, and taking a stance and saying, no, we need to do something because I want to live in a world um, that I can survive in and then my children and children can survive in. So I guess the importance of, of elders listening to youth um, in these times, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think that what I was really sort of going for, one of the themes of the film is this kind of intergenerational dynamic, you know, and how with uh, Triwell that I play, you know, with William's father, you know, that that tension, you know, that kind of generational tension of wanting to hold on to one's sense of um, sort of, I guess, patriarchal superiority, you know, and and how like and how much of a stranglehold that has and that can, that continues to become if you hold on to it, you know, without um, if you if you can't see that really you're not, you've got to, you've got to be a member of your family. You know what I mean? You're not the head of your family. You've got to be, you've got to participate with everybody else, you know, and those sort of systems, a lot of the films sort of talks about kind of these systems. And one of those systems is how Triwell runs or thinks he should run like his, his family dynamic. And that extends to all of these kind of patriarchal systems, the way the governments think that they need to run the and rule over the people the way that all and these sort of generational push and pulls happen and how William is then stuck within the context of all of that and um, and how the solution starts to arrive when those kind of systems are pushed apart basically and those kind of systems are reorganized into better systems essentially systems that can appreciate generations can can appreciate as the sort of elder dynamic can appreciate um the tradition you know can appreciate all of these things even even this kind of ancestral root from which we all kind of come from you know that they appreciate all that but they embrace the future that it embraces embraces progress it embraces new solutions to new problems you know, and and that, and embracing that, embracing the youth, embracing a younger generation, and being able to find a community, and to find society, uh, and to exchange ideas properly in a proper forum, without the kind of dictates of older ways of thinking, is the only way that we can, as a community, start to find the solutions to the problems we face. You know, and ultimately, that's what William does. He does identify the problem, and he starts and he starts to find the solution to the problem. But it's only when he is able and embraced within the context of the society that the society and its totality can actually, you know, implement solutions to the problems. And that, for me, is a great metaphor for how we have to we have to all sort of become William Kamkwambas in our own way we have to identify the issues we can't run away from it anymore and we have to identify the solutions and decide collectively to live in the solution to embrace the solution and sort of and you know sort of march in that direction and you know and I think that there's an incredible power with that you know and and I don't think it needs to discard essentially anything it's sort of just is much more of a embracing, you know, that it's no longer this kind of heralded individualism, but it's a return to this idea of of common values and sort of common benefits and, you know, embracing a sense of, you know, a real sense of community, a real sense of society, and thereby, you know, utilizing that to face down challenges. Right. And not only embracing the William Kumquambas of the world, yeah. but also giving giving the William Kumquambas of the world the opportunity because he's coming from this very rural village in Malawi. And, you know, he had this amazing experience and, and rose 
up in his community and was able to tell his story. But there's so many, you know, black and brown, poor, young people out there that have vision and intelligence, and they just literally lack opportunities. So um, I really hope- yeah, that's the thing. I mean, I think that's the crucial part of the story. You know, that that the that talent is evenly distributed around the world, but opportunity isn't. And some I'm finding a way to support young people, to support people who want to identify and implement the solutions to the problems that they face and need that support, need education, need to be able to, um, to, be, given the, to be given and allowed to have the tools in which to, um, to really solve the issues that they are, that they are in, you know, is, is, the, is the way forward to, to be able to work with that in an intergenerational way, in a, in a, in a global way, you know, to, um, to really face down these kind of, uh, these kinds of problems by coming to people and engaging with them as equal partners in solving these issues, you know, through education and, and support. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Shuatel. I, I just, I appreciate this conversation so much. And um, uh, thank you so much for being on the show. And um, I, I'm so glad that it's on Netflix and it's reaching this really large audience and more people yeah, hear thanks. about William's story. And, and congratulations again on your first directorial debut. <laughs> thank you so much. was my coverage of the 2019 Sundance Film Festival, featuring the voices of the filmmakers behind Anthropocene, Honeyland, and The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind. I hope you enjoyed listening to our coverage, and if you haven't already, check out part one of our Sundance series by Kristen Tiesch in the previous episode. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Serena Simons, and our theme music today was by Unicorn Heads and Density in Time. If you haven't already, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It helps our listeners find the show as well as lets us know how we're doing. For more information about the resources voiced in this episode, head over to our show notes page at wildlandsinc.org slash EOC 175. And as always, thanks for tuning in.